Chapter 6 of Napoleon, A Short Biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. Napoleon, A Short Biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 6. The 19th of Brumaire and Marengo. Scenes at St. Cloud, Formation of the New Government, External Affairs, the Army of Reserve, Plans of Campaign, Passage of the Alps, Marengo, Triumph of Bonaparte. In the early hours of the 19th of Brumaire, troops were marching out from Paris to St. Cloud, some five miles distant, to take charge of the palace where the legislative bodies were to meet. This palace, destroyed by the German bombardment in 1870, was on a hillside close by the river Seine, and its buildings, courts, and terraces were completely encircled by massive iron grills. Following the troops came a constant stream of carriages and pedestrians, of legislators and spectators, so that by eleven or twelve o'clock the little village of St. Cloud was crowded with a representative audience come to witness the politico-dramatic performance announced to take place. Many pressed up to the grills, watching the privileged few within and exchanging comments with the sentries pacing beyond. These sentries really represented the essential factor in the situation, and therefore it will be well to note a few particulars concerning the troops. Of the 3,500 men present, most were devoted to Bonaparte. The cavalry consisted of several squadrons of dragoons commanded by Colonel Sebastiani. He was a Corsican and had placed himself unreservedly at his compatriot's disposal. The infantry consisted nearly entirely of several battalions that had followed Bonaparte in the campaign of Italy. They not only felt a personal devotion for their old general, but a detestation for what they called a government of lawyers from which they had never received proper treatment. The soldiers displayed their dilapidated uniforms to the spectators and complained that for six months the directoire had left them starving and without pay. In one company a single pipe of tobacco was gravely passed from man to man so that each might puff in turn and enjoy his proper share of this somewhat Spartan luxury. There could be no doubt as to what answer these soldiers would give if the question between Bonaparte and the government was placed clearly before them. But there was another body of some four hundred men whose sentiments appeared more doubtful. These were the guards of the councils. These men, picked to defend the councils against Parisian disorder, were stout republicans, well paid and not disaffected. It was uncertain how they would act, though their superior officers had been won over by the C.A.S. Bonaparte faction. It had been arranged that the Council of Ancients should meet in a hall in the body of the palace, the Council of Five Hundred in a covered orangery outside. It was from the Jacobins in the latter body that resistance was feared, 
for they had during the previous afternoon and evening been actively debating means of resistance to what they denounced as an attempt to overturn the Republic in favour of a dictature. Jordan and Bernadotte, who each had some following in the army, were not disinclined to support the extremists, but nothing more was settled than that the 500 would oppose a strenuous resistance to any constitutional amendment. Was constitutional amendment, however, the course that Bonaparte and CAS intended to adopt? No one could tell. The fact was that the conspirators, who had planned every detail of the first day with such minute care, had left the second to take care of itself. There was absolutely no plan of action. When Bonaparte and his supporters arrived at St. Cloud on the morning of the 19th, they found preparations for the meeting of the two assemblies incomplete. It was past noon before the orangery was ready for use, and by that time impatience and nervousness had set in. At last Lucien Bonaparte took his seat in the presidential chair and the proceedings of the lower house opened. Many motions and resolutions were handed in, but one only met with the general approval of Jacobins, Bonapartists, and all sections. This was that the members should individually renew their oath to maintain the Constitution. This was eminently characteristic of the Assembly, a resort to talking when it was essential to act. At two o'clock the solemn farce began, at four it was still proceeding. In the meanwhile, the ancients had also got to business, but unfortunately none of the members appeared to know precisely what course to take. Finally, getting no lead from Bonaparte or CAS, a proposal was put forward that the three vacancies in the Directoire should be filled up. Till this moment Bonaparte had been little seen. From a room in the palace he had watched events, confidently awaiting their development in a favourable direction. But the more he waited, the less satisfactory did the appearance of affairs become, and now, trusting to his soldier's instinct, he determined to proceed to the point of danger. Accompanied by his chief of staff, Berthier, and by his secretary, Bourienne, he presented himself at the entrance of the Council of Ancients, and, unbidden entered the hall, making his way to the foot of the President's tribune. He then hastily and nervously delivered a speech, the worst of his life. Unused to the atmosphere of a deliberative assembly, unprepared with any definite propositions, he excitedly stumbled from blunder to blunder. The ancients were not disinclined to support him, but when he explained that the Republic was in danger from a great conspiracy, there were immediate demands that he should specify what his accusations meant. He grew embarrassed and talked louder. The legislators pressed questions on him and became heated. Finally, Bonaparte began telling of what he had and what he could accomplish by the might of the sword. By this time Berthier and Bourienne were pulling at his coat-tails, and in the midst of much excitement they finally half-dragged, half-persuaded him away. 
This was a bad beginning, but worse was to follow. Bonaparte was now roused, and, not waiting to cool, proceeded from the ancients to the five hundred in the orangery below. There was a crowd at the door through which he slipped nearly unrecognized and began elbowing his way down a gangway blocked with members towards the presidential tribune. A moment later, a voice shouted, Down with the dictator! Down with the tyrant! And a rush was made for the spot where the little Corsican was still struggling to make his way. An indescribable uproar followed. The cry of outlaw him that five years before had sounded the knell of Robespierre now rose loudest of all. And surrounded as he was by the furious deputies, Bonaparte appeared lost. But Murat with other officers and a few grenadiers were forcing their way through to save their general. In a moment more he was dragged safely away, half suffocated, his coat torn, his face scratched and bleeding. He retired to his room for a short while, then descended to the courtyard and mounted his horse. He was more at home in the saddle glancing down a row of bayonets than in the midst of legislative assemblies. The incursion of Bonaparte into the Council of Five Hundred resulted in the putting forward of a formal motion of outlawry, and it was well for him that his brother happened to be president of the assembly. Lucien showed as much resource and coolness in this crisis as Napoleon had impetuosity and rashness. He first declined to accept the motion, then, finding he could not resist it, claimed his right to speak, and leaving the presidential chair, ascended the tribune. Notwithstanding the Jacobin efforts to howl him down, he held his ground for some time, and succeeded in whispering a message to a friend to the effect that the conspirators must act at once or all would be lost. This message resulted in the appearance of half a dozen grenadiers in the hall, who proceeded to the tribune, surrounded Lucien, and escorted him out into the courtyard. No sooner was he in the open than he called for a horse, and, jumping into the saddle, pushed up to the ranks of the guards of the council. He addressed them in ringing tones, declaring that a faction of assassins had dominated the assembly, that his life and that of his brother were no longer safe, that he, the president, represented the assembly and called on them to restore order, and that if his brother intended or ever attempted anything against republican institutions he would stab him with his own hands. At the conclusion there was much loud shouting of Vive Bonaparte! The guard of the councils appeared shaken. The soldiers of the line had long been stamping with impatience. At this moment, someone, perhaps Murat, gave an order, and a drum began to roll out the charge. Murat promptly made for the door of the council chamber, followed by Leclerc and the infantry. This move was decisive. At the sight of the troops, the legislators hurried to leave the hall, most of them by the windows, 
and Murat, ordering bayonets to be fixed, cleared the room. The revolution was accomplished. In the late hours of that evening, small groups of the five hundred and of the ancients representing the victorious faction met in the now deserted halls of the palace of St. Cloud, and gave an appearance of legality to the decrees sent for their approval by Bonaparte and C.A.S. On the following morning proclamations appeared announcing a new government under three consuls, Bonaparte, C.A.S., and Roger Ducot and declaring a policy of the reunion of all parties and of peace. It is curious to reflect, when viewing Bonaparte's career as a whole, that it was on a policy of peace that he attained power. Yet it was so. That was undoubtedly the great desire of the French people in 1799, and it was the perfectly well-founded opinion of the country that if any man could give it peace, internal and external, it was Bonaparte. Yet the military situation of France was so weak in regard to the three great powers with which she was at war, that few believed in the possibility of foreign peace save through victory. Bonaparte, however, was no sooner in office than he made pacific propositions to the Allies, and so far succeeded that he detached the Tsar Paul from the alliance. Great Britain declined all overtures, being then in hopes of soon reducing the French garrisons in Malta and Egypt. But this she did in terms that showed peace to be possible in the near future. With Austria, however, it was clear that a campaign must be fought. That campaign will now be related, and a consideration of the internal policy of Bonaparte after Brumaire must be, for the moment, postponed. In the spring of 1800, the military position was as follows. The remnant of the French army of Italy was covering Genoa under the command of Massena. A much superior Austrian army under Melas eventually drove it into that city, and threatened an invasion in the direction of Doulon and Marseille. In southern Germany, Cray, with 150,000 men, menaced the Rhine. Moreau, with an army nearly equal, stood on the defensive at Baal. As against these two Austrian armies, the French had a great advantage of position owing to their holding the projecting bastion of Switzerland. In strategic language, they had a double base from which to maneuver, either to the north or to the south. The meaning of this will appear from the plans formed by Bonaparte. His first proposal was this, that all the available reserves should be marched into Switzerland to strengthen Moreau, that that general should transfer his army from Baal to Schaffhausen whence he could march, so as to place himself on the Austrian lines of communications, that Bonaparte should accompany the army to supervise the operations. Moreau rejected this scheme. He preferred a plain frontal advance to the more daring and destructive one proposed, and he objected to Bonaparte's virtual assumption of supreme command. Precisely at this juncture came the news that Melas had driven Masséna into Genoa, and Bonaparte promptly determined to alter his plans.
Instead of basing himself on Switzerland to attack Cray's lines of communications, he would turn south and deal a similar blow at Melas. His preparations for this were eminently characteristic of his genius. His first move was to deceive the enemy as to his strength and intentions. The newspapers accordingly announced the formation of a camp at Dijon, where a formidable army of reserve was to be assembled. The first consul, as he was now officially known, went down to inspect the troops, and so, of course, did the spies of all the powers. They found nothing more than a few weak battalions made up of boys and cripples and presenting a most ragged appearance. In a few weeks, Bonaparte's army of reserve was the laughing stock of the courts of Europe. But not for long. The camp at Dijon was only a blind. With Berthier at the Ministry of War, the most strenuous efforts were being made to squeeze out of the nearly exhausted resources of France one more effective army. There were other camps besides that of Dijon, where strong battalions were being got into shape. In April it was reported that reinforcements were to be marched to Nice, where Suchet with a small force was facing Melas. In May it became known that Bonaparte was leaving Paris for a tour of inspection that was to last just two weeks. By an article of the new constitution it was provided that the first consul should not exercise any military command. Such a clause was not likely to hold good with a man like Bonaparte at the head of the state. Yet the situation was precarious. The government was very new and a military failure might spell ruin. In this difficult position, anxious to direct operations, to keep up the military deception, to make Paris believe his absence momentary, Bonaparte took the following steps. He appointed Berthier general-in-chief of the Army of Reserve, but arranged personally to supervise the operations of that general. He gave out that he was only leaving the capital for a fortnight and that his diplomatic receptions would not be interrupted. He left Paris on the 6th of May, and from that moment his plan ripened with startling rapidity. From the centre and east of France, long columns had been for many days converging on Geneva and southern Switzerland. On the 14th, the first column of a large army began ascending the pass of the Great St. Bernard. A week later, the army of reserve, strengthened by a corps taken from Moreau, had struggled through the snow and ice of the Alps by various passes between the Montsenis and the St. Gotthard, and was rapidly marching down into Piedmont and Lombardy, straight towards Melas's lines of communications. The operations of the next three weeks may be summed up in a few words. It was some days before Melas realized that a French army of considerable size had descended from the Alpine passes into Italy. By this time his line of retreat towards the quadrilateral was cut. He then appears to have done all that was possible under such circumstances. He concentrated his columns with a view to marching on the enemy, pressing on the siege of Genoa in the meanwhile. 
On the 4th of June, Masséna and his starved garrison surrendered after a memorable defence. In the week that followed, Melas marched towards Alessandria, and on the 14th there was fought near that fortress the Battle of Marengo that decided the result of the campaign. Bonaparte, having occupied Milan and pushed Murat with the cavalry as far as Piacenza, crossed the Po, advanced to Stradella, and thence spread out his corps right and left so as to intercept the Austrian retreat at every point. Strategically, he had already won a nearly decisive advantage, for being between the Austrian army and its base, he had but to succeed in holding the defensive to win. Yet his anxiety to extend north and south led him into error, left him too weak centrally, and nearly resulted in disaster. The French main column marching southwest from Stradella came into contact with the Austrians marching northeast on the 13th, but failed to recognize the fact that the enemy was in force. Melas probably had some 35,000 men present, Bonaparte not more than 20,000. On the following morning, the Austrians advanced resolutely, deploying right and left of the main road. Bonaparte hastily sent orders to his outlying columns to march to his support and withstood the attack as best he could. Heavy fighting followed, gradually turning in favor of the Austrians. By three o'clock in the afternoon, the French had been driven some five or six miles. Their left was completely routed, their right was in great confusion, and in the center alone was there still some semblance of effective resistance. To Melas, the battle now appeared won. Leaving the pursuit to his chief of staff, he turned back to Alessandria, where he wrote dispatches to his government describing his victory over the French. On the departure of Melas, the mass of the Austrian infantry was ordered to continue its advance along the road to Stradella in one heavy column, battalion after battalion. This overconfident and faulty disposition proved fatal. At four o'clock, General Desay, who had marched since the morning on the sound of the firing, brought up his division to the aid of the first consul. A battery was placed across the road and suddenly unmasked. The head of the Austrian column was broken. Several of Desay's fresh battalions were rushed forward with the bayonet, and at the same moment Kellermann charged down in flank with five or six hundred dragoons. In a few moments the dense Austrian ranks were in confusion and at the mercy of the horsemen. There was no time and no space in which to deploy. Bonaparte pushed his advantage home. The straggling French were rallied and brought back to the attack. The fresh troops of Desay carried everything before them and avenged the fate of their general, who fell early in the fight. In half an hour's time, the victory of the Austrians had been turned into a disastrous rout in which they lost thousands of prisoners and all the positions they had captured earlier in the day. On the following morning, Melas offered to negotiate. A convention was agreed to whereby the Austrian army was permitted to continue its retreat in return for which Lombardy and all the western parts of Italy were ceded to the French. 
It is not altogether correct to think of Marengo as a lucky victory. In one sense it was so, but even had Melas won the field, Bonaparte had already secured so great a strategic advantage that he would probably have won the campaign. Had he retreated to the entrenched position of Stradella and been rejoined there by the corps of de Say and Serruyer, it does not appear likely that Melas could have succeeded in dislodging him. Failing in that, he was cut off from his base and would have had to pay the consequences. Bonaparte's return from Marengo to Paris was the greatest, the truest triumph of his life. The enthusiasm everywhere evoked was based on the idea that the struggle he had waged so successfully was necessary to the existence of France and was the herald of an honorable peace. So it proved. A few months later, Moreau defeated the Archduke John with great loss at Hohenlinden, and Austria gave up the struggle. Peace was signed at Lunéville on the 9th of February, 1801, and left France and Austria in about the same position as the Treaty of Campo Formio four years before. End of chapter 6. Recording by Geoffrey Wilson. Ames, Iowa.